You are listening to ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. Non-alcoholic steatohepatitis, or NASH, is a common, often silent liver disease. It resembles alcoholic liver disease, but occurs in people who drink little or no alcohol. The major feature in NASH is fat in the liver, along with inflammation and damage. Most people with NASH feel well and are not aware they have a liver problem. Nevertheless, NASH can be severe and lead to cirrhosis, in which the liver is permanently damaged and scarred and no longer able to work properly. Welcome to Lipid Talk. I'm your host, Dr. Larry Caskell. Joining me today is Dr. Kenneth Cousy, Associate Professor, Diabetes Division at the University of Texas Health Science Center at San Antonio. Welcome, Dr. Cousy. Thank you very much, Larry. I was wondering if you could help us out by giving us a layman's explanation of what NASH is and what NAFLD is, and and is this really the foie gras of being human, living in a time of affluence? The number one problem we have is that being uh, overweight and diabetic exposes us to typical things we've been hearing all these years in terms of cardiovascular disease and damage to your eyes or kidneys, but it's been largely overlooked by specialists that you can damage your liver. Fatty liver disease, or NAFL, means that you're accumulating fat in the liver. Until recently, everybody knew this, but what we didn't know is that a significant proportion of these individuals will end up with a damaged liver. How many people with NASH will actually develop cirrhosis or, or liver problems? Well, I mean, we have kind of partial information on that. So there are now ongoing studies by the NIH and by our group and others that are trying to define the long-term natural history, but it is our current belief that maybe as many as 10 or 15 percent, one out of seven individuals with a fatty liver will end up with a damaged liver. So this is a, a serious problem. Considering there's a lot of fatty liver out there, I, I think every day in my practice, I see one or two fatty livers walk through the door. It's pretty easy to diagnose. To be honest, I think the latest numbers we have, we have a large study done in Dallas with gold standard technique that involves the use of MRI. And it, the, the thought is that at, at least one in every third adult has a fatty liver. And there are different degrees of fatty liver. Fat can only be sitting there, uh, what we call just steatosis. Or it could be causing inflammation and, you know, fibrosis and rendering the way to cirrhosis. And this is what we call NASH, non-alcoholic steatohepatitis. It's a hepatitis induced by fat. And we think that at least 40% of patients with a fat by an imaging study have this other form that is a progressive form of the disease. That's amazing that that many people actually develop damage from the fat just sitting there. Do we have any idea in the mechanism and how the fat is actually inflaming the liver? To be honest, we have done the observation that if you're overweight, probably this proportion of people with fatty liver, it goes from one-third to two-thirds. And if you have type 2 diabetes, the diabetes of the adults, that maybe go up to 75 or 80 percent from studies that we have done. So what we don't understand, if this is so common, why don't we have more liver damage? And there are two working hypotheses. One would be that, well, maybe not that many get into trouble. But second, perhaps more likely, is this, this epidemic of obesity and diabetes has come up in the past 10 to 15 years. We may see a m- massive increase in liver damage in the coming years. How are we currently making the diagnosis? And, uh, you know, besides just doing an ultrasound and seeing fatty liver, do we need to be doing 
an MRI, does that add any extra information? That's really a very good question because that has not been completely answered. The real problem is that this is a pretty silent condition. I mean, I would say the analogy would be with osteoporosis. Until we had bone densitometries, we didn't think people would have osteoporosis, and then we learned that women had it, and then also that males had it. So I think we are at that stage. We're beginning to develop techniques to pick this up. The typical approach that you and me as clinicians have done is you have elevated liver enzymes, and typically the alanine aminotransferase will be about will be higher than the aspartate, the AST. In alcohol, it's the other way around. You get the, the AST is higher than the ALT. But in fatty liver, it's the ALT, which is increased between one and a half to twofold. And what happens is then these individuals would get worked up, maybe sent to the gastroenterologist. They would get an ultrasound, maybe a CT scan, fat in the liver, and maybe a biopsy, maybe not. But since we didn't have any pharmacological intervention, well, people say, well, lose some weight and come back in a few months. So it was like we didn't have a whole lot to do. Things have changed pretty radically recently. First, that we are very concerned because now we know that two-thirds of people with a fatty liver don't have an elevation in liver enzymes. So that makes a big problem because unless you are very aware that your obese or diabetic patient can have this problem, you won't think about it and nothing will happen. So first we have to raise awareness amongst physicians, and then the physician has to raise the awareness amongst the patients. Exactly. So that, that's why I'm glad that you invited me to, to talk about it. If you've just joined us, you're listening to ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Larry Kaskill, and I'm with Dr. Ken Cousy today, Associate Professor, Diabetes Division at the University of Texas at San Antonio. Dr. Cousy, what do we know about weight loss and exercise? Will that improve NASH beyond just lowering liver enzymes? Will it decrease the risk of them going on to develop cirrhosis? The more you read, the more surprised you will be that, that we know kind of very little about it. In general, lifestyle intervention and weight loss has been good for almost everything, you know, diabetes, cardiovascular disease. And we think that that's also the case for fatty liver disease, although most of the studies have not been very either large or controlled. But in a general sense, that is an, an excellent approach. Let's talk glitazones. As you know, they're in the news, so it's very timely that we're doing this interview. Tell me a little bit about the study you did in November of last year. What we thought is that we needed to have a good intervention in this condition. And actually, a young gastroenterologist in our medical school said, well, what are we going to do with these individuals with elevated liver enzymes? So due to a number of mechanisms of how the glitazones work, we started a study with pioglitazone. And basically what we did, we picked about 55 patients with elevated liver enzymes in which we confirmed by an imaging study that they had fatty liver. We did a biopsy before and after six months of treatment, and we did a number of metabolic evaluations. And uh, what we learned was that, number one, you could get a significant metabolic improvement in terms of glucose, reduction in insulin resistance, and reduction in liver enzymes. But the really breakthrough was that, for the first time, we were able to reduce fat in the liver, reduce by half the inflammation associated with that fat, and within the pioglitazone group, which is Actos, we reduced fibrosis. Now, the difference with the placebo was of uh, borderline significance, but uh, it was a very provocative finding, and I think now the field is looking at this very carefully. So it sounds like you were surprised. Was, was Takeda surprised? This was a, an investigator-initiated study. I proposed the study to our IRB, and later, once we got the approval, Takeda facilitated the drug 
and placebo tablets and supported about a third of the study. This is basically a GCU, a general clinical research center study sponsored by the NIH. But of course, they are really surprised that this was so impressive, and, and we were too. I need to let you know a, a word of caution that this is a six-month study in 50 patients, and although 50 sounds small, it's, it's very difficult to conduct these studies. And these were basically people with diabetes or pre-diabetes, so which was an indication that basically diabetes is the indication for the drug. There is an ongoing study in non-diabetics done by the NIH, and uh, that's the PIVIN study, in which they are studying for two years a larger number of patients as we speak. Those results are going to be available, I guess, in about two and a half, maybe three years. Was there a reason you chose pioglitazone versus rosiglitazone? There was only one study with troglitazone that we knew that was causing trouble. We chose pioglitazone because it had a more favorable effect on the triglyceride. For our lipidologists out there, can you elaborate a little bit on the lipid benefits of pioglitazone? Yeah, pioglitazone or Actos, taking a number of now studies available in the past since these drugs have been approved, shows that you reduce triglycerides on average by 20-25% with pioglitazone. It does not increase, in general, the LDL, the bad cholesterol, and HDL goes up between 10 to 15%. Instead, rosiglitazone, which is Avandia, increases LDL by maybe up to 10% and has a neutral effect on the triglycerides, and some of the studies has increased it a little bit. So we don't fully understand why that is, but it might be related to all these things we're reading from this last New England Journal of Medicine paper. What impact do you think that the recent paper and the recent news about glitazone's effects on uh, heart disease risk is going to affect glitazone staying on the market and being able to proceed with your research? The paper in the New England, I don't want to get into there, but it's a controversial. I think that it has opened a big debate. Unquestionably, it has hurt rosy glitazone. But I think that if you looked at the studies with rosiglitazone, the big studies like DREAM and ADOPT, there was a trend towards less favorable outcome, although the event rates were very, very low and between 1% to 2%. In contrast, with pioglitazone, you have the, the large study, the proactive study, if anything, there was a neutral or a, or a positive effect on the cardiovascular outcomes. And there has been a review meta-analysis done by the Cochrane database, which is a very serious review and showed no bad effect, no deterious effect on cardiovascular disease of pioglitazone. So I don't think that there's any good rationale for this effect in pioglitazone. So I don't think it will hurt our, our research. When you see the patient with the big belly who you think has fatty liver, and it turns out they do have fatty liver, are you now able to tell them, listen, if you don't lose weight or do something about this, you may develop cirrhosis? Does that have a bigger impact than just saying, hey, you're overweight, you got some fat in your liver, lose weight? I think it will. And this is a very good point you touch upon because if you have fat in the liver, even if you never develop cirrhosis, that fat in the liver is impairing your glucose metabolism significantly. So if you have diabetes already, you're going to need a lot more medication, if not insulin. And it's also causing a lot more abnormalities with your triglycerides and lowering your good HDL. So it is going to cause also probably more cardiovascular damage, and there's some emerging evidence in that regard. So my advice for the primary care doctor is be aware that this condition is out there. How you're going to work it up, I would say, of course, liver enzymes. An ultrasound has maybe the sensitivity is not that good, but a good starting point 
And I think we're going to begin doing a little bit more liver biopsies or at least treating empirically with maybe teoglitazone if you have diabetes. It's not approved if you don't have diabetes, but I think that doctors are going to have to take a more aggressive approach. You're saying do a liver biopsy before doing an MRI and then perhaps starting therapy and seeing how they respond. Is there a way to, to not do a liver biopsy? If you have elevated liver enzymes, probably that's a good thing to do. An ultrasound will be the most practical thing, although if it's normal or negative, you may still have a fatty liver if you have, you know, a big belly or diabetes. So its sensitivity is not that good. When we talk about MRI, it's not the regular MRI in terms of it's looking at the images. It is the MRI you can get in any hospital, but the, there is what we call spectroscopy. So you look at peaks in a specific software. So it's done in some medical schools only. Thank you very much, Dr. Ken Cousy, for coming on the show today. Thank you, Larry. I'm Dr. Larry Kaskill, and you've been listening to Lipid Talk on ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, please send your email to xm at reachmd.com. And thanks for listening.